This episode is brought to you by the ASIL Go app, free and exclusive to ASIL members. Find the latest security industry news, updates, events, publications, resources, and much more. Simply go to your app store and search for ASIL Go to install. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Chris Delaney, the Industrial Relations Manager for ASIL or Industrial Relations Advisor. Welcome back to the program, Chris. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Now, uh, this is part of our, our attempted regular monthly catch-up that we're supposed to be doing this year. It's only halfway through the year, so you can see we're going very well with it so far. <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about. Too. <laughs> uh, now, Chris, one of the things I want to talk to you about today is it seems that there's a, a, a lot of stuff going on in the news around workplace relations, workplace relations, apparently I can't speak, uh, and changes affecting both employees and employers. So can you give us a rundown on what has changed and how it affects the security business? Yeah, thanks, John. Look, um, in December last year, the Albanese government introduced some, some of the most significant changes, quite frankly, in the in the last 30 years. And, uh, and there are more to come. But some of those changes have already taken effect. Uh, some will take effect throughout this year and they're and it's important really for employers to get across it. So with a bit of luck, we might be able to cover some of those things today. <clears throat> Excuse me, but we will not be able to cover everything. There's a lot sure. there's a lot happening. Look, okay. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'll just go through three or four of the issues that are most important at the moment for people to get on their head around. So there have been changes to what you can can and can't have in a contract of employment, for instance. Uh, many companies have had secrecy clauses that uh, that prevent their employees from talking to each other about their pay. Now, a lot of employees don't want to talk about their pay anyway, uh, but uh, the, uh, the legislation has changed that and said you cannot have a pay secrecy clause in your contract of employment. So if there is one, you've got to change the contract and remove it. If there isn't one, then make sure you never put one in. So, and with uh, also with contracts of employment, fixed term contracts, and sometimes employers will uh, decide that they want to have a 12-month contract just to see how it runs, uh, and then they might have another 12-month contract after that and so on. Uh, they've... Uh, the government has outlawed those fixed-term contracts unless they are for a particular specific purpose, so something that's job and finish, a project or something of that nature. So okay. if you've got a fixed-term contract, it has really no value if that contract is going to be rolled over time and time again. Okay, but that's an interesting one for the security industry. Let's walk back for a second. You may or may not be able to answer this, but... With regard to the, the the pay secrecy side of things, why does that matter? Why would they bother making such a change? It's interesting because when you think about secure jobs and better pay, the concept is that if you stop your employees from telling each other what they've got, what they're being paid, you're removing fairness and you're removing the opportunity for employees to get paid better than what they ordinarily are at the moment. And that might relate to female employees more than males. Okay. If you if you want equity and fairness, then you should take away that um, 
that responsibility to keep your uh, keep your rate of pay secret. Okay. So, look, I don't think it's onerous, to be quite frank with you. A lot of employees don't want to tell everybody what they get. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it whether it changes things uh, dramatically or not, you know, that, that remains to be seen. But, yeah. you know, ASIL has templates for contracts of employment for various types of jobs. And uh, if ASIL members want to contact me, they can uh, they can certainly take advantage of that. Probably okay. a much, much more um, onerous thing for uh, employers is that they've the legislation has increased the opportunity for employees to seek flexibility in the workplace. Now, yeah. we've seen with uh, COVID that um, that employees have been working from home quite a bit, and it, there is a, a a push amongst a lot of employees to stay working from home as much as they possibly can, and you know that can work with some jobs, and it doesn't work with others. You won't see too many plumbers working from home or alarm installers in the uh, security industry. <laughs> it has but been expanded to include uh, a, a lot of different circumstances. So em employees uh, or a member of their immediate uh, family or household, if they experience domestic violence or pregnancy uh, and all of the other issues that... that uh, that were covered by flexibility in the past, they will be able to make a claim for for um, fle a flexible work arrangement. Now, now on this on this yeah. subject, just while we're discussing this, sorry to jump in, but I just there's a couple of things around this that I'm curious about, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. To what degree is an employee or employer required to entertain the flexibility request? Because let's just say. Um, we work in a, a a building where I need all of the team there for a particular project for whatever reason it may be. And someone says, oh, well, I really want to work from home on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Fridays. How much do I, like, is this something that I have to say yes to? What are the circumstances under which I can say no? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that are facing it. And the reality is, you know, for anyone who's still stuck in that paradigm of, no, I need everyone in the office, the reality is if you don't entertain it, then your employees are just going to leave and go and look for jobs elsewhere anyway. But what is the level that I am as an employer required to entertain that to? Okay. Well, look, there's some pretty strict rules around it. First and foremost, the employee has to put their request in writing. Yep. And they have to specify exactly what they want and why they want it. Now, the employer is then obliged to sit down with the employee and attempt to resolve that either by agreeing to it, if they can, uh, by offering an alternative to it, if there, if there can be one that can be reached, or refusing it. Now, they can, the employer can refuse on reasonable business grounds, but those reasonable business grounds are somewhat restricted. They can say it's too costly. They can say that they don't have the capacity to make the change or that the changes would be impractical. Uh, and they can, they can say that there would be a significant loss in efficiency or that the changes would be detrimental to customer service. Now, whatever they say, they have to do it in writing. They have to do it within 21 days. 
and they have to justify it. So if you're going to say it's too costly, you might have to provide some indication as what the cost is going to be to you. Now, if you don't reach agreement, this matter can go to the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Commission can help you reach agreement by conciliation, or they may make a decision based on uh, on their rules as to whether or not you should uh, allow the employee that opportunity. But remember, this is about not just about, oh, yeah, I really want to work from home because, you know, I can play with a cat or something. It's, it's, it's about, you know, I have some significant responsibilities uh, from working from home or I've got a, a significant difficulty in trying to get to and from work. Uh, you might have somebody who works on the central coast in New South Wales um, and has to travel all the way into Sydney and the trains are failing all the time and that might be reasonable. But yeah, so you've got you've got to produce reasonable grounds uh, for saying no, and it can be tested by the Fair Work Commission. And of course, again, ASIO members get guidance and assistance on these matters, and they can come to us for that. I'm assuming there's an element of common sense in some of this, though, and perhaps I shouldn't. Um, and what I mean by that is, let's just say, in the example of the security industry, uh, an employee works an hour for an hour away from work. And it takes them an hour or more to get to and from work each day. And they say, look, I want to work from home a couple of days a week. But their role is um, testing equipment that's returned to the business. So it might be testing cameras or testing access control panels. And it's like, well, no, the test lab is set up in the office. It's not feasible for you to do that role from home. Is there an, a common sense element where the, the employer can write back to them and say, well, well, how would you do your job from home? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it'll be hard sometimes if the employee has been doing their job from home during COVID for several months. Um, yeah. It's hard to prove that you can't do it anymore. But look, every situation will be looked at on its individual merits uh, and both sides need to be sensible about it. Uh, look, yeah. uh, a- another big issue that's coming up is the what we call the sunsetting of zombie agreements. Okay. A zombie enterprise agreement is one that was made prior to 2010, uh, and it has remained in place lawfully since then, but it may not be the best thing for employees. Now, what this government has decided to do uh, is to um, sunset these zombies. In other words, from the 6th of December 2023, those zombie agreements will expire they'll they will terminate automatically unless the employer and the employees decide to seek an extension through the fair work commission it's not not really a practical solution quite frankly uh or they commence negotiations for a new agreement or the decision is that they'll wait until the 6th of december and then revert to the award rates of pay now the unfortunately this is the 8th of June. On the 6th of June, uh, the legislation said that you're required to uh, write to your employees and tell them which one of those three things you're going to do. So hopefully they have done that. <clears throat> ASIL has assisted members with client letters and so on that can help them with that and letters to uh, employees as well. So if you've got a zombie agreement out there, you really need to get some good advice and get it very quickly because your zombie agreement is going to go. And it, yeah. the, the practical 
situation, John, is that many of those zombie agreements had clauses in them that made them commercially a lot more um, um, attractive to clients uh, and they were very competitive against people who were paying the proper rates of pay and awards and so on. It also means that once the zombie agreement goes, the rates of pay are going to increase quite considerably for the uh, employer and they may not be able to keep the contracts that they've got. So they really need to think very seriously about what they're doing right now. Okay. <clears throat> the last one that I want to talk about now um, is the employer's positive responsibility uh, with regard to sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, right now, employers must implement policies and procedures to, to protect employer employees, I'm sorry, and others, people who enter the workplace, contractors, uh, to protect them from sexual harassment in the workplace. Now, that doesn't mean you just have a little bit of paper that says we don't like sexual harassment and we won't put up with it. It means that you really need to have a comprehensive way of dealing with it, training employees about it and ensuring that it doesn't happen and investigating it properly. Now, again, ASIL's got a guide that we, we provide on discrimination, harassment and sexual harassment, uh, and ASIL members have access to that. So um, they can, uh, they can again, contact us if they need to. Okay, but excuse my ignorance around this, but, I mean, hasn't there been a requirement in place around this kind of thing for forever and a day where, you know, companies are required to have strict policies and guidelines in place around sexual harassment? They're supposed to have reporting procedures. And all that. Like, what has changed, if anything? Well, look, if the, the major change really is that the Fair Work Commission will have the, uh, the power to deal with it. Right. Whereas people... Uh, had to go to an anti-discrimination board or the Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Tribunal to get some kind of resolution about sexual harassment. Uh, now the Fair Work Commission can actually step in and do something about it. Okay. So these right. are these are the the the, the Fair Work Commission has uh, has uh, been expanded to uh, to do the things that, quite frankly, it did when it was the Australian Industrial Relations Commission many years ago. Right. So on the subject of change, I believe there's been a significant pay increase on the way for award-related employees. And I guess the question is, what does that look like um, for the security industry? Well, it's the same for the security industry as it is for many others. Um, awards will increase by 5.75%, um, and that's on the base rate. We know that in the security industry, there's not a lot of fat. Uh, uh, in uh, margins that uh, we charge our clients, and 5.75 will probably tip that uh, quite quite strongly. There's also a 0.5% increase in the uh, superannuation uh, to 11%. That all comes into effect on the first full pay period on or after the 1st of July 2023, as that, that's the usual process. Uh, we put out a, a rate schedule. We have one prepared already but we wait for the Fair Work Commission to uh, to announce its uh, draft changes to awards before we put it out, just in case we're, we might be half a cent here or one cent there out. They take it to six decimal places, so it can be a, a little bit tricky. 
Um, but I think we're going to need to let our clients know that uh, that there will be an increase. Some of our contracts don't include a uh, an escalation clause, which which really means that it's very hard when you get an increase like this one. This is the biggest increase we've had since, I don't know, probably 1991, 92, yeah. uh, even, even maybe earlier than that. It, it mirrors the sorts of increases that were occurring back in 74 when we had a, a wages prices spiral, and I'm not trying to be uh, alarmist about that, but, you know, we're, we're in a fairly sort of tricky economic situation at the moment. We've got lots of things lots of costs going up for both employers and their employees. And it's not going to, 5.75 is not going to solve a problem. I think it's going to create one. In what way? Uh, well, uh, when you get 5.75% and it, if it uh, affects inflation and inflation stays at seven or eight or goes up higher, interest rates will go up. The cost yeah. of the cost of every good will increase because you've got to produce it and your employees are getting 5.75% more. You've got to ship it and those employees are getting 5.75% more and then you've got to sell it. So, you know, if, if everything keeps going up, we keep asking for more money. Yeah. And, and everything keeps going up. Um I'm not convinced that the economists have got it all right at the moment, quite frankly. But then I'm not an economist, so I've just uh, I've just lived through a couple of uh, these recessions, and I, I'm feeling very, very twitchy. Yeah, well, I don't think you're uh, alone in that boat, unfortunately. Uh, and it sounds so. I mean, in in the grand scheme of things, between everything you've just outlined, it sounds like there's a lot happening. Yet that's not all of it. There's more to come. So well, look, yeah. we we haven't touched on multi-employer enterprise bargaining. Um, we we did a uh, a web uh, a webcast on that with Asiel a little while ago, um, and uh, perhaps people can go and have a look at that. That but it might be the subject for another podcast. Um, but there will be some significant changes to come. Um, they include changes to casuals. Uh, the the uh, redefining of casual workers um, that's going to be very interesting okay. um, and I'll, I'll touch on I'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a sec but you know we've got same job same pay that that's also going to be very interesting and we've got um, 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 wage theft uh, criminalizing wage theft now it's not going to affect a lot of people but if uh, those people out there who've decided that they will pay underpay wages on purpose, and it's not just a mistake, they could be subject of criminal convictions. Uh, right. Now, just on casuals, the, the, the whole casual landscape in the last couple of years has been all over the shop. We've had Workpack and Skeen and Workpack and Rosato and a whole range of other cases that have gone everywhere up to the... Uh, the federal court and back, um, and they've been, you know, it, it, as I said, it's been all over the shop. Uh, the Albanese government want to settle that down a little bit, uh, and they are going to change the definition of a casual. But realising that 
this is secure jobs and better pay, um, the issue is really about um, legislation that uh, that will try to interpret the concept of regular and systematic, which creates a casual or versus a permanent or permanent part-time employee. Uh, there'll be there'll be change to push for more security for the casual employee. Now we've already seen this in a recent case between uh, a young fellow by the name of Arbon A R B O N and Bunnings, um, in which the Fair Work Commission made a decision about uh, about what is regular and systematic, and quite frankly, it defies logic to me. Um, but um, I think it gives us an indication of where the the, the uh, Fair Work Commission is going to go with this. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how the definition rolls out. Defies logic in what way, though? Because we've already seen in the cases that you alluded to earlier with Workpack and Skeen and Workpack and Risotto that there was already a much broader definition applied to what was and wasn't casual insofar as what is reasonably and foreseeably predictable and ongoing. So how has this changed? Yeah, well, you see the the uh, Morris government put in legislation that sort of overcame that in a way, um, uh, allegedly, uh, you know, in as much as if you have a contract between yourself and the employee that says this is a casual arrangement, uh, then the contract is king. Right. So that will be overturned and we'll go back to what we had with Rosato, Rosato sorry, not Rosato, Rosato <laughs> and... Uh, and Skeen and Workpack. Um, so, yeah, the, the Morrison government tried to intervene in that and fix that up. Um, it'll be overturned. So but we're it, back to this situation where even if I am not guaranteed that as a security company I'm going to hold that contract for more than 12 months, if I'm providing you with ongoing systematic work over that 12 months, then you may well be considered a, a part-time a full-time employee. Yep, and and regular and systematic is not the way we see it. Uh, it could be that you work one Sunday every six months or every three months or something like that, uh, but you've always worked Sundays. That might be considered systematic. Right. Right. That, regular that's might gonna... be that you've been given a roster and you can say yes or no, I want to be on it or I don't want to be on it, or I can work this day or that day. That could be regular. Yep. It, so it's, again, it's one of those things where we don't really know exactly how it's going to roll out. Okay. Now, the other big issue is same job, same pay. And you will have seen that uh, the larger peak bodies like uh, the Australian uh, Council of Chamber, uh, Chamber of uh, Industry and uh, uh, Business Council of Australia and COSBOA and so on uh, have... Uh, launched a campaign against same job, same pay. It's not a huge issue for our industry, uh, but it could be something that would affect us. It's really interesting that labour hire workers only represent about, and this is about labour hire workers supposedly, right? Yep. There's only about 2.3% of the workforce that is labour hire. That's, that's 300,000 people. It's absolutely much smaller in the security industry. 
for uh, those I was going to say for those people listening who aren't necessarily familiar with what you're talking about, can you explain what you mean by same job, same pay? Yeah, I'm about to get to that. Okay. But essentially what it means is that let's say you've got a security officer. No, let's say you've got a, uh, uh, a security alarm installer and you've got a contract to go and do some installation on a, on a construction site. You go to that construction site, your alarm installers on sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, and he goes onto the site and he starts to to do an install. There may be another person on that site uh, covered by an enterprise bargaining agreement or or some other arrangement that he might have, um, and he might be an electrician doing that work on that site, but he might be doing the same work that your employee is doing, even though he's an electrician. Based on what we know so far, your employee might be able to claim that he should get the same as what the electrician's doing because he's doing the same job. Right. He doesn't have a licence as an electrician um, and the electrician may have negotiated his rate of pay based on completely different circumstances that might exist in the security industry. Now, the concept sounds great. It sounds fair. But in determining whether you should get the same rate of pay as the guy next to you or, or your host's employee uh, is, uh, is going to be very, very difficult. We think it will cause a lot of disputes, a lot of argument, um, and uh, we don't think it's workable. We're, we don't even accept that the security industry providing contracts, right? We contract into somewhere. Um, you've got the MCG. We provide security officers. You might have three or four of your own, and we we give you five hundred for the for the uh, grand final. That's not labour hire. Yeah, that is not labour hire, and. We think that the uh, the federal government is uh, is using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut, if you like. Two point three percent, three hundred thousand people in labour hire around Australia. As I said before, much less than that in the security industry, and of that two point three percent, a very very minute percentage of that will be people getting paid less than the host's employee. So this widespread uh, application of same job, same pay, we think will cause dis confusion, disputes, and a loss of work for some small businesses. And uh, So we're opposed to it. Uh, the bigger organisations are opposed to it, in some, some ways for different reasons. But uh, by and large, we are not labour hire. So we don't feel that we uh, we should be dragged into this same job, same pay situation. Well, it would also seem that if you take that same job, same pay legislation in the context of the first point that you mentioned in the podcast, which is you can no longer contract employees to say you're not allowed to discuss what you're on, you have a perfect storm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a lot in the legislation that's coming around that that seems to be contradictory in a way. I mean, just like the example you gave, 
The other example is, well, if I've got an enterprise agreement or I've got an award and the host employer has got an enterprise agreement that I've had absolutely nothing to do with and I haven't been involved in any negotiation as to how it would roll out, why should I be connected to it? I'm not legally bound to it, but this would this bit of legislation would say that I am. Well, I was going to say, wouldn't wouldn't that, in on the surface of it, to a layperson like me, it seems to defeat the entire purpose of enterprise bargaining agreements because I, all of a sudden my enterprise bargaining agreement isn't worth the paper it's written on if we have same job, same pay legislation. And I said exactly that to a, uh, a breakfast meeting of uh, security employers yesterday, as a matter of fact. I said, why would you bother doing an enterprise bargaining agreement if every time you work in, walk into a client's premises and you might walk into five different clients' premises in five days, why would you have an enterprise agreement? Because you don't even know what you're going to be paying your employee each time they walk into those places. The dog's breakfast, quite frankly. I was going to say, surely that's untenable, though. I mean, it makes it almost impossible for an organisation to budget because... If you don't know what you're supposed to be paying your people, then how do you set a 12-monthly budget? Yeah, and look, as I say, the concept is is nice. You know, it's it, it saying same job, same pay seems to be a very, very laudable thing, laudable, sorry, thing to do. But, you know, when you dig down into it, it just doesn't work. Hmm. Okay. That's now, where we are, John. Um, there is a lot more to come. As I said, I mentioned wage theft. Um, there's also the opportunity these days for an employee to take a claim to a uh, uh, of up to $100,000 now to a small claims tribunal for underpayment of wages. That, um, that's gone up from 20000 to 100000 which means a lot of employees will get access to a, a wider range of uh, remedies which is not a bad thing necessarily. Um, but, you know, we've got the Fair Work Ombudsman, we've got Labor Hire Licensing Authority, we've got Wage Theft Authority in Victoria. Uh, we've got a whole range of different authorities that regulators that can uh, that can go out and investigate underpayment of wages or breaches of awards. From my point of view, they should just get on with it. Yeah. Wouldn't need all of these extra layers on top of what we've already got. Well, Chris, if people want to know more about, you know, industrial relations and all the rest of it, uh, how do they reach you? Well, uh, ASIAL members can get me at uh, chris at asiel.com.au. Uh, I won't put out my phone number because I, <laughs> I probably wouldn't stop answering the phone forever. But they can also go to the ASIAL website or download the ASIAL app onto their, onto their phone. And they'll get access to a myriad of bulletins that we put out. I put out 22 last uh, last month, bulletins to tell people what they can and can't do in the workplace, how they might go about what, what they want to do, interpretations of awards. We've got lots of templates that people can use. We've got guidance for them on things like, as I said, discrimination and sexual harassment. There's a, a multitude of opportunities for them to to uh, to get the information they need to run their business as well, and they should take advantage of it. So the ASIL app. 
the website, chrisatasial.com.au or ir at asial.com.au if they can't spell Chris. Um, it's all there for them. Fantastic. All right, well, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, John. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day.